that we come this evening to worship you in all of your splendor and all of your majesty and all of your worth. And I pray, Lord, that you'd still our hearts and minds, that we would be attentive to your word, attentive to uh, what we're going to be diving into tonight, Lord, that we would steer our attention and our direction towards you. And Lord, I thank you for, again, just being who you are, being the God that you declare yourself to be through your word, <clears throat> that we don't have to we don't have to make you into something. And Lord, I, honestly, we get ourselves in a lot of trouble in our thinking and in our attitudes when we do that, when we try to force you into what our perception is and, and what we think you should be. But I pray, Lord, that we would conform our thinking to who you are and not the other way around. Father, again, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that meets us here. And we pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and done tonight. Lord, thank you again for this morning. And what a praise of those that followed you in believer's baptism that made those public professions of faith. Lord, what a blessing it is to be able to, as a church, come alongside those individuals and to help them to continue to grow in their walk with Christ. And Father, again, may you be glorified in all of this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. You may be seated. And as you are seated, we're going to go ahead and uh, look at a few announcements to get started. Just a couple things as we hand off the baby to the to the non-parent. What? <clears throat> All right. So a uh, few announcements to get started. So uh, first thing I want to make sure you're aware of is, uh, as Pastor Greg mentioned here uh, this morning, uh, coming up in a couple of weeks is game day. And so if you have uh, someone that you know that is a student, uh, you are a student and you have some friends you can invite and or uh, you have neighbors or family members that are in 7th to 12th grade, uh, you can invite them out for game day totally free. Uh, 10 to 4 is the time on that. Uh, if you want any or have any questions about uh, food donations, you can see Pastor Greg about what needs might be there. I know he said this morning a lot of it's already been provided. Or you can talk to him about a financial donation. Um, I'm sure he would appreciate that as well. Also want to let you know we have our 125-year anniversary coming up. So that's going to be uh, the potlucks out there for be possible to sign up for dinner for six. It's a great way to get to know some other couples in the church, other individuals in the church. Uh, so I want to make sure you know about that. Um, also, don't forget the food drive ends technically on Wednesday. Um, we said the whole month of February, but really we're going until Wednesday. Uh, that'll be the last service. You can drop off food. Uh, Bible studies are going on, so don't forget about those starting up here at the beginning of March. So sign up for that if you haven't signed up already and make sure you pay. Uh, $24 for the ladies, $17 for the guys. Um, and uh, I just really want to encourage uh, involvement in this. I, I know uh, every Bible study session and season, uh, we have those that get involved in from the men to the ladies that just really love the interaction, the conversation. Um, and I know it's another time to be away from the house. I know it's a time to commit to be at the church. Um, but I promise you, you will not regret it. You know what? I've never met one guy in our men's Bible studies. I can only speak for that directly that has ever got to the end of a, a Bible study and said, man, I really wish I would have done something else these last six, seven, eight weeks. Um, and so it will be a blessing to you. So sign up, make it a point to be there. Um, and then also want to let you know about the mom, the mom sale going on. Uh, this is going to be, um, uh, again, uh, when is this going to be March 25th, uh, the time, uh, from 10 to nine to 10, uh, is when people are going to be coming in 10 to two is the actual event where they can come up and buy stuff. Um, one of the things I didn't mention this morning about this is, uh, they are actually going to be helping support the pregnancy center of Lapeer. Uh, so they're going to be doing some accepting some donated items for that. 
uh, instead of cash at the door. So all the information's in the bulletin. If you have any questions, you can see uh, Barb Goodwin or uh, Kat Danielson or even Kelsey can get you some information on that. So definitely ways to get involved in that, uh, whether you're buying or selling, all right? Um, also, don't forget about the library going on. Um, Sundays, it's going to be able to be checked out in the morning and before evening service today. Um, uh, Avi's not with us this evening, obviously, so uh, today was a little bit different. But moving forward, that's our goal is to be in there. If you do see a book that you want to check out um, and someone's not here to help you with that, let me know. Let Kelsey know. We can definitely take care of that. Um, and if you're Julie Johnson, you just check the book out anyway, apparently. So, But I was going to share that again with her. She's not even here. I'm still going to say it, though, because I was already going to say it. I planned on it. But um, So, uh, again, a lot of things going on, a lot of upcoming events. Uh, please make sure you're involved where you can be involved. All right? Um, also, tonight, I mentioned this last week, uh, a video that I was going to share that I came across uh, last weekend, actually. Sandra shared it with me. Um, and we've been talking now for, well, this is the sixth commandment, so seven weeks, about progressive Christianity, liberal Christianity. And what does that look like? And why is that so dangerous? And why do we need to be guarded against this kind of thinking and teaching? And so what I want to do is, I came across this video. Sandra shared an article with me. Uh, this individual is in the, um, I said last week he's in the Anglican Church, which is also, some of you maybe know as the Church of England or what was the Church of England. Um, this is actually, he's not really part of the Anglican Church proper. Uh, he's in something called the Free Anglican Church, which is basically in the last so many years, like we've seen other denominations do, where a denomination will begin to split between the liberal side and the conservative side. He very much is on the conservative side of this. Um, also worth noting, he's going to mention that he's relatively new um, in his position of deacon, um, but don't think deacon like we think of deacon. Uh, in different denominations, they used similar titles, but in different respects. Um, to be a deacon in the Anglican church, he had to do two years of theological studies um, to just have that position, and he's newly ordained in that. Um, Sandra and I were, she was looking up some more information about this individual. Um, he actually, his ordination was withheld because he is more conservative in his views. And the Anglican church tried to say, well, there's only so many positions available. And so basically he ended up kind of leaving the Anglican church proper, going more to the conservative Anglican church and was ordained almost instantly because his qualifications were there. Everything was there, but they did not like that he was conservative and more conservative in his views, specifically in the area of what he's going to talk about tonight, which is same-sex marriage. Now, this specific talk is on that topic um, because the Anglican church some of the bishops in the Anglican church have been advocating for more of a liberal position on this, like many other church denominations are doing. So this specific talk is dealing with that area. But what I want to do is not only focus on that, but the broader scope of what he says in this, in this speech. Now, again, we as a church, we would not agree with every doctrine of the Anglican church. Okay, or the Free Anglican Church, or the Church of England, if however you want to call it. Um, the Anglican Church is basically kind of a hybrid of Protestant teaching and some Catholic teaching. It's kind of a hybrid of some of those things. So there are things that we would disagree with theologically or doctrinally with this individual, but his overall point in this speech, I agree with 100%. And it's so amazing to see someone stand. And you're going to see and hear, he talks about the room he's in. Most of the people in this room are not in his camp. They're not on his side. And so he's speaking to an audience that is opposed to what he's saying. And I just love his, his decision to go and speak to this group, but also his willingness to, to boldly say, this is what the word says. 
And I'm not going to shy away from that. So I wanted to show this to, to you guys because I think it's a great example of what we're talking about when we say that we stand up for the truth of Scripture. Uh, we don't have to be brass about it. We don't have to be arrogant about it. But we need to be firm in what the Word says. So I'm going to show this to you. Then we're going to come back and kind of pick up in our sixth commandment and move forward. I will give you a little bit of a heads up. It's about a 12-minute speech. I was going to kind of just pick out some parts, but I want you to hear the whole thing. Um, and then also you're going to hear a bell occasionally. I have no idea what the bell means, okay? About halfway through, you hear the bell. A few minutes later, you hear two bells, three bells. I don't know if that's how they tell them, like, hey, you're half done, almost done. I'm just really thankful we don't have a bell here, okay? Because somebody would be ringing like that thing like crazy, okay? So give a listen to this, and I hope it's an encouragement to you. from my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be pleasing to you, O Lord. Um, I was going to say thank you for the warm introduction, but I think instead I'll say thank you for the invitation. That's far more charitable. Um, it's a genuine pleasure to speak here this evening, it really is. I'm happy to be back at the Oxford Union. It wasn't too long ago that I was based here myself. And I'm very happy to be part of an organization that is still standing up for free speech, still standing up for diversity of thought and opinion, going against... Uh, the approved narrative of academia in the 21st century. So well done to you all for that. Now, I genuinely struggled with this one. Uh, I've struggled sleeping this week, actually. I've, I don't get stage frights. I never get nervous when I go on television. I recently debated at the Cambridge Union and the Durham Union, no problem whatsoever. But this, there's something different about this one. It's been causing me anxiety. So someone kindly sent me Luke chapter 12 verses 11 to 12 saying and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself and what you should say for the holy spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say i know there's something a bit ironic about me coming here with a pair of speech after that but why do i feel anxiety about this well we are up against the authorities three bishops from the established church that means either i am wrong and Christians have been teaching incorrectly for the last 2,000 years, or, and Jews and Christians for the last four to 6,000 years, or we have church leaders attempting to drag the church into apostasy. Neither way is good. The consequences are severe. This debate is not just happening in this chamber. This debate is happening in real time in the House of Bishops as we speak. There's a growing number of vocal bishops who want to change the, the church's teaching on marriage. The result being the spiritual neglect of Anglicans up and down this country. Now, I may have trained at the last remaining sound Anglican seminary up the road at St. Stephen's House, but I am a newbie deacon. So perhaps I am, on, I am wrong on this. Let's consult people wiser than myself, starting with the church fathers. St. Thomas Aquinas, in his summer theological quite clearly identifies matrimony as being between one man and one woman, beneficial for begetting of children, and for the good of offspring for both educational and developmental purposes, necessary for the perfection of the community and for the worship of God. St. Paul describes marriage as, therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh in which he is mirroring the language of Genesis, where God tells man and woman to be fruitful and multiply. Both Aquinas and Paul refer to matrimony as a sacrament, 
a holy mystery in which one man and one woman are joined together in conjugal union with the potential to be blessed by the grace of God with children. To start a family for the worship of God. People will often argue in this debate, we know more about homosexuality now than we did then. Maybe so. But are we really going to suggest that God knew less then than we know now? For either all of scripture is God-breathed or it isn't. Either we believe Christ or we don't. So let's refer to another source, the Book of Common Prayer. One of the Anglican formularies, an authority of liturgy and catechism in the Anglican Church. The prayer book lists three ordained reasons for matrimony. First, it was ordained for the procreation of children, to be, to be brought up in the fear and nature of the Lord, and to praise his holy name. Second, it was ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, that such persons as have not the gift of constancy might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of the church's body. And thirdly, it was ordained for the mutual society help and comfort that one ought to have the other, both in prosperity and adversity. And if we look wider abroad to the church Catholic, which defines in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Matrimony, the matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole life is by the nature ordered toward the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. This covenant between baptized persons has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of a sacrament. This is referred to as marriage in God's plan. So are we looking to alter the catechism of just the Anglican Church or the Catholic Church too? Should, should they all get with the times? 2,000 years of Christian doctrine cannot be altered at the whim of a few liberal bishops. What is God-ordained cannot be adjusted to suit our new liberal progressive views. Marriage is heterosexual and monogamous and should be open to the possibility of children. The Bible backs all of this up. It's very clear throughout on this matter whether it's nine verses or 32,000 verses, marriage is between one man and one woman for the purposes of procreation. Sex outside of marriage is a sin, and that is the same for heterosexuals as it is for homosexuals, although the Bible is quite clear that same-sex relations are abhorrent. And before some smart Alec starts ask, asking me the question of whether I'm wearing mixed fabrics, there is a difference between the moral laws and ceremonial laws. And Christ did come to fulfill the old laws. Both the issues of marriage and homosexuality, however, are still addressed in the New Testament, in Paul's epistles, but also in the Gospels. Jesus does talk of marriage in Mark and Matthew, both in the context of heterosexual union. So my question to the bishops would be, do we not believe in the authority of scriptures anymore? Can we pick and choose which parts of the gospel we adhere to? The church, after all, is Christ's bride, as we heard earlier. Jesus is described as the bridegroom, so that we may know how he relates to us. Two grooms would be pointless. Christ is already in union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's us he's inviting in. Two brides is what we're looking at here. The church is attempting to marry itself and to leave Christ out of the picture. We are directly talking about undermining God's plan as he has revealed it to us. We're replacing his authority with our own. If marriage is no longer between one man and one woman, are we open to the idea of polygamy? We disregard the heterosexual aspect, so why not the monogamous aspect too? If love is love, as we keep hearing, who is to say that three men loving each other is not more love than two men loving each other? 
Shame. Confederacy. And I'm sure someone in this chamber has echoed the words love is love tonight. And this is not about love being love. This is about marriage, the sacrament of holy matrimony. It is directly connected to love, but it's not the definition of love. Too many people utter those words and confuse the meaning of love. Agape, the biblical context of love, is a divine love. It's a sacrificial love. It's not lustful. People often conflate sex with love. It's very disingenuous. We've heard quite a bit of that. But then, of course, atheists often pirate the words, God is love. And we've heard that one tonight, too. Again, without any understanding. Yes, God is love. But he sets the terms, not us. Another one we've heard plenty of is inclusivity. Should the church be more inclusive? Again, it's a play of words. It's, it's virtue signaling. It's to appear good rather than to be good. The church should absolutely be inclusive. Christ spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes, but it is they who went away changed, not Christ. We are fallen, therefore we are all sinners. The church is open to sinners, of course it is. That's the purpose of the church. But it should not be to encourage people to continue to sin. Our duty as clerics is to help lead people to Christ, to lead them away from sin, not to embrace it, not to affirm it. I know many LGB people, I know many LGB people who live lives in Christ. They abstain from sexual gratification to be closer to God, and it's not easy, it really isn't. It's perhaps not fair, but it is right and it is good. And these people are being let down. I've had people crying, saying, I could have got married, but I did what the church taught me was right, and now the church is saying they were wrong all along. I've wasted my life. As Christians, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. The trap that we're falling into in this debate is looking at the church through the eyes of the world rather than through his kingdom. In the secular world, we already have equality in law. People can enter civil partnerships or even gay marriage outside of the church, and that's their prerogative. However, the faith is inherently discriminatory. God is discriminatory. He sets conditions on us entering his heavenly kingdom. It is not a free-for-all. We must turn away from sin, repent, and follow Christ. And I want to specify, it is the sin that is the problem, not the sinner. Every single person is loved by God, and God forgives all of us of our depravity. But we have to turn away from our sins and turn toward him. And it seems the panel opposite me has forgotten to separate the sin from the sinner. One can denounce sin while still welcoming the sinner. So as I wrap up, my message to the proposing side is, do not lead us astray. Do not lead people astray. Do not be the wolves in sheep's clothing. Do not be the false teachers that the Bible warns us about. Remember your obligation to defend the faith. Stop teaching about diversity, inclusion, and equality, and get back to teaching about redemption and salvation. This is spiritual neglect. Help people by telling them the truth. Be kind to people by supporting them through those struggles and reminding them that Christ suffers with them. And be compassionate by leading them to Christ when the world tries to lead them away from him. The church is imploding, and the faithful masses have stopped turning up on Sundays, and we are seeing the most rapid decline of Christianity in this country that we may have ever seen. Do not accelerate it with heresy. You do not have the authority to bless sin. When I hear the Bishop of London on record saying these new prayers will mean priests can bless same-sex relationships, some of which may be sexual in nature, I hear the devil at work. Bishops are promoting the idea of sacramental sodomy. Let them be anathema. Repent. And to the rest of you, I have no doubt that some of you will consider me a bigot or a transphobe or a homophobe, but I am neither of those things, none of those things. I am simply a follower of Christ, a Christian. And we are naturally countercultural. And if so called liberals 
were truly diverse and tolerant, they would embrace us just as they embrace everyone else. And the, not right now, I'm just wrapping up. And the point has been made, but the growing Christophobic attitude around this public debate and the ugly level of, of hypocrisy is that we really see people hold Muslims and people of other faiths to the same expectations that they hold Christians to. Who is calling, except my good friend here, for Islam to embrace gay marriage? Who is calling for the Quran to be updated to modern societal norms? It is the same, mind your language, it is the same patronizing attitude of people of other, that treat other faiths, patronize other faiths while being intolerant towards Christians at the same time. It's a shame, but in the words of St. Athanasius of Alexandria, if the world is against the truth, then I am against the world. Thank you very much. That was on me. Okay. I feel bad. He ran back there too, and I still, like, wasn't even, the pack wasn't even turned on. All right. So, hopefully you guys were encouraged by that. Um, a lot in there. So I just want to take a minute, and I just want to ask, like, what, what encouraged you in that? What did you find as, what did you take away from that? What he shared and what he said? Anthony? Oh, yeah. Yeah. St. Ignatius, right? If the world is against truth, then I am against the world. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else that stood out to you as either an encouragement or a thought that you take away from that? God sets the terms for love, not us. Love that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, anytime somebody had an encounter with Christ, right, every sinner that he ministered to, Christ didn't leave changed, the sinner left changed, right? Absolutely. Anything else stood out to you in that, Sandra? Yeah. But, like, to see that there's somebody that has come out of that church that is truly um, hold out Christ. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sometimes I think we forget, too, like, in denominations. Like, we can disagree with doctrines of a denomination, but still understand that that denomination teaches, teaches Jesus Christ as the Son of God, need of salvation. Those same basic things that we would agree with, they're going to teach those things. But when there's other issues of how they do church or positions in church, we can say, well, we would disagree on those secondary issues, right? So it's okay to have those disagreements, but understand that they're still preaching Jesus, right? And I think sometimes when you hear other people of other denominations speak, it reminds us of that, that commonality we have, right, with other believers. And sometimes, some of us grew up in churches where if it's not Baptist, we don't think it's right, at, like, top to bottom, right? Now, I've, I've was saved in a Baptist church. All I've really known is Baptist churches as far as my attendance, but there are non-Baptist churches preaching the word. We're okay with that, right? We're okay. I, now, I agree with, I think the Baptist doctrine, in my opinion, is the closest to New Testament doctrine. But just because the church doesn't have Baptists on the sign and they teach the 
teachings of the New Testament, we most likely would be in a lot of agreement with them. They may just not know that they are actually teaching what we would hold to as doctrine. Make sense? So any other feedback from the video before we move into tonight's, Keith? What was, was this hand like this? I don't know. This hand kind of threw me. The, not the raised hand. I saw your hand. It's like seven feet in the air, so I kind of saw it. Yeah, it's hard to miss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, and, and I wanted, when he was talking along that point, and he said uh, something to the effect of those individuals, it's not easy for them. Right. It, it's hard, and it's, but they know it's the right thing by God's word to do. So I find that so encouraging that he's acknowledging, hey, they've opened up and said this is their struggle. By the way, we all have sin struggles, right? And we've all resisted temptation, whether it be that issue or some other issue. And we know it wasn't easy when we said, okay, no, right? By God's grace, by God's strength, no. And then when you get around other people and they encourage you to say, hey, I'm struggling too. Let's come together and, and overcome that. I think in this area, though, like what keep saying, I feel like certain sins, you don't feel like you can do that with. Because, I mean, if I said lying, I'll pick on lying. Everyone in this room could go, yeah, we all know we shouldn't lie. It's better when we don't lie. Like we can all look at that one and go, that's easy. But certain sins, it's almost like there's even in the church, there's like this, well, if you struggle with that sin, you just keep that to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's a gauge. Yep. But one thing he said in that same line that kind of struck me was when he said, these individuals, now that the church is saying, hey, it's cool, get married, do your thing. To me, that's such a, like, for them to, in tears to say, well, I thought I was doing the right thing, but now you're, the church is saying it was wrong in what it's teaching. So is the church now right, or was it wrong then, or is it wrong now and right then? And the confusion that I think would, and I love what he said at the very beginning, either He's wrong, and 2,000 years of church teaching is wrong, or Jewish and Christian teaching, four to 6,000 years, is wrong, or maybe some of the liberal leaders of these churches is wrong. If I have to pick which side I'm going to err on, I'm going to err on the side of 2,000 years of Christian teaching. Because I love what he said there. Yeah, we have, may have learned more about certain issues that we face, but God didn't grow in knowledge of that. He knew exactly what it was from the garden, right? Anything else from that speech that encouraged you or you found interesting? Yeah. 
Right. Polygamy versus just whatever, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, right. Which is exactly what Romans 12:1 and 2 says not to do. Right? Because the conformity in Romans 12:1 is not so much in action first, it's in thought first. Right? Because our thought leads our actions. So if my mind is being renewed in Christ, right? Being renewed by the Spirit, Romans 12:1 and 2, I'm going to conform to Christ. But if my mind's being conformed to the world's way of thinking, I'm going to conform to the world. And then what's the next step? My actions are going to flow out of conformity to Christ or conformity to the world. And like you said, I think one of the things, and we've been talking about it in this progressive Christianity. So let's, let's answer that question. Why is it, we've gone now five weeks, six weeks really, six weeks now. Why is it that liberal Christianity, how is it that they can so easily embrace teaching that is accepted by the word, world and encouraged by the world, but not advocated by Scripture. Why is it that they can do that so easily? Renee? So what do I have to do with the word of God to start down that road? I have to disregard it. I have to see it as non-inspired. He even said, we, we can't just pick and choose. I love what he said. Either it's all inspired by the, word, by the mouth of God or it's not. Either we believe Christ or we don't, right? Did you? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on that before we get into this week's commandment, which I'm going to fly through at 637? Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 We've grown in our knowledge of these issues and we know more about it today than they did 2000 years ago, which is true. I think the understanding is definitely grown as far as humanity is concerned, but are we willing to take the leap and to say that God didn't know everything that needed to be known when he wrote these things through the apostles, right? So great point. All right. So number six, I'll move through this relatively quickly. And if we don't get through it all, that's fine. We'll just pick it up next week. Um, Just a reminder as well, uh, moving forward, studies on Sunday night. 
or uh, Wednesday night. If you have anything you'd like to study on a Wednesday night, let me know. We'd love to move into that as well. So inviting you guys out to Wednesday night as well to come out for that. We've been kind of going through Exodus. We're finishing it up. So we're kind of looking at what we're going to study next. So if you have something you would like to study on Wednesday night and you want to be a part of that, just let me know. We can definitely talk about that moving forward. All right. I want to mention that during announcements and I totally forgot till just now. So, all right. So our sixth commandment. So uh, this is, and I'm going to read it a few times through because I know some of you guys are taking notes. So sixth commandment, encouraging, amen, Bentley, amen. Encouraging the personal search is more important than group uniformity. So the sixth commandment of progressive Christianity, encouraging the personal search is more important than group uniformity. So encouraging the personal search is more important than group uniformity. So we can already hear, right, the, the, the fighting in this commandment. So what is this really saying? So what is this really saying? Well, Philip Gully, who's the individual that we talked about that wrote this idea down and this idea of these confessions of these statements and things, and that Richard Rohr basically kind of piggybacks on a little bit. Um, one of the things that he says, Gully laments, this is a quote, the fact that Christians are so concerned about protecting the church from ad- apparent views, um, apparent views, that they st- uh, stifle free thinking and even kick out people who don't conform. So his argument here in this commandment is that the church is so adamant trying to get people to conform to just what we believe that anyone who stands against that, anyone who questions, anyone who's, quote, a free thinker is asked to leave or removed because they just don't conform. Gully writes of examples where people were discipled, I'm sorry, disciplined or removed or shunned due to certain behaviors. So in his writing, he gives story after story of people who were disciplined by a church, removed from a church, or shunned in a church because of their behavior. Now, we can't take commandment six apart from the other five, right? We understand where we're going here because it's all about the individual, how the individual feels and and what the individual thinks and protecting that individual to be themselves and to do what they want to do. Again, in these examples, the point is made that these people were merely trying to think for themselves. That's a quote. But the church demanded group uniformity. He continues to say that Jesus, of course, would never have wanted such things, but encouraged spiritual exploration. So again, we have somebody telling us what Jesus would have done and what Jesus would do who does not believe in the authority of Scripture. It sounds really good when somebody just says, well, Jesus would have wanted this. But if you already know the person doesn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, what is their basis for that? If I don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, I don't believe that this book is fully inspired, which includes the Gospels, which includes the accounts of Jesus' life. When I make a statement like Jesus would never do that, Jesus would never say that, Jesus would never uh, encourage this, or he would never discourage that, what's the basis for my view? Yeah, my opinion of what Jesus would do. And what scriptures do you think I really like of Jesus? What are the ones I definitely grab and go, no, that's good, and that's good, and that's good? What's that? Okay, the ones that favor me? The ones that feel good? But, but the Bible says, Jesus loves me. 
right? The Bible says that Jesus died for me. The Bible says that Jesus, and we want those feel-good verses, but we forget the ones where Jesus, as we're going to look at a little bit here, calls people to repentance, calls people to surrender, and calls them to make a decision about himself. So again, this individual, Gully, says that people are just about spiritual exploration, and Jesus would be fine with that. Jesus was also, according to him, quite comfortable with independent thought or actions. Independent thought or actions. So what's the problem with this? This statement that encouraging the personal search. So we should highlight the word search there. And then understand, in contrast, is more important than group uniformity. So uniformity would be the comparison. So it's either they're on a search and we're okay with that, or we make them conform to what we want. That's what Gully is presenting here. The truth is Christianity is not just about being on a journey. This is a very popular thing to hear today. We're all on a journey. That's a true statement, but Christianity is not about a journey in and of itself. As we've discovered, we are all growing in our walk with Christ. However, that is not what progressives are claiming. The issue for progressives is when Christianity clearly states that God has revealed himself to mankind through his word and can be found through his word, that God clearly calls men everywhere to repent and to believe. That's what progressives don't like. Don't definitively tell me there's an answer. Remember last week? It's more about asking questions and supplying answers. It's more about the search instead of telling me there's a solution. Progressives view all religion as being in flux. That God, whatever God you choose, has not clearly made himself known that life is an exploration and never an arrival. Remember we talked about before that the supposed intellectualism of this? It sounds really intellectual to say we're just all on a journey. We're all growing. We're all learning. You know, there's, don't be definitive. Don't be dogmatic. And do you see how all of this plays Together, if I tell you I'm on a journey, you can't question my journey. Don't tell me there's a destination. Then you can't be dogmatic about what the word says about where I'm going to end up. Because we're all on a journey. And you're just on the same journey I'm on. So you have no right to tell me. And we've completely eliminated the word of God from this whole process. The church, as discussed before, as a whole, welcomes questioners and wants to talk through the issues of Scripture. Yes, again, some churches discourage this type of learning. But I do believe that the majority of churches encourage questions and seeking and the idea of being on a journey, if you want to use that term. However, the goal, again, is not uniformity to a set of rules. It is desired conformity to Christ. Why do we teach the word of God? Why do we disciple? Why do we encourage people to walk with Christ? Not so they'll conform to us to our individual or even church set of rules. The point is that they will be conformed to Christ, that that's the goal. Progressives say free thinking, but really what they mean is self-thinking. And that I, in that, I mean they want to govern themselves. And any God that would demand complete surrender and submission is to be rejected. So let's ask a question. Does God demand complete surrender and submission? As followers of Christ. I want to look at an example. Mark chapter 10. And I'm not going to turn there. But you can mark it down for for notes. I just realized what time it is. Well, we'll go there. It's a very familiar passage. But I want to go there. Because it helps us to understand this point. Mark chapter 10. We looked at this even not that long ago. Mark chapter 10 verse 17. 
So all the way through verse 27. This is the story of the rich young ruler. So I just want to pick out real quick what Jesus says here. So Mark 10 and look at verse 21. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lacks, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have a treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. What is that? How would you describe that? That call to the rich young ruler from Christ. Is that a call to just be on a spiritual exploration, a spiritual journey, be in flux, free thinking, whatever you want to do is fine? Pretty specific directions, right? Why did he tell him to do this, by the way? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. Why did he tell him to sell everything you have and give it to the poor? Okay? He said, I've kept all the commandments since I, was a, since I was a kid. So not only have I done it, I've done it for a long time. But what did Jesus kind of say back to him? The first commandment, right? You should have no other gods before me. What was his God? His God was his wealth. So to remove that idol... Which again, remember, what's the whole point of the Old Testament? Don't worship idols, if we're really being honest. To remove that idol, he commands him, go and do this. And he doesn't. He walks away sad. Again, did Jesus encourage independent free thinking on the issue of salvation for this man? Did he say to the rich ruler, how do you think you should come to me? What do you feel comfortable with giving up? No, he says, sell everything you have. And then we always omit this part. What does he say before he says, follow me? Take up your cross. What's it mean to take up a cross? What does it mean going through a bad day at work? What's that? Give it all, Jeff? Yeah, die to self and be willing to die for Christ. Right? Surrender, complete surrender. Being willing to give up whatever is needed. Again, he actually required conformity to God and submission under his authority. So again, what's the problem here with progressives? Progressives don't like the idea that you definitively say, this is what's asked of you. And when the church says, this is what you need to do, and this is what you shouldn't do, progressives don't like that. Now, let's, let's go back to his point here, because he said specifically that the problem he has is that people were removed from a church disciplined by a church or shunned by a church. And so what is the point there? Well, any form of discipline is now wrong. That's really what progressives are saying. Because again, remember from other weeks, we shouldn't be so focused on behavior, right? Don't worry about the behavior. Worry about just being there for the person, being kind. But the truth is Jesus actually believed, believe it or not, in church discipline. In Gully's writing, when he speaks of someone being shunned or removed from fellowship, he blames church discipline. Now, to be fair, church discipline has been misused and abused in churches over the years. Maybe you've experienced this. They've been used, the church discipline's been used to be petty and self-serving, sometimes to remove someone that is challenging a view of a leader maybe wanting to do their own thing as far as a non-biblical issue and a, a leader or a group of individuals don't like that individual, so they use church discipline to come against them to try to change the situation. They try to use church discipline, which is wrong. 
However, church discipline is not the problem. The application is the problem. The goal of church discipline is always restoration, not removal. Yes, there are times if someone is unrepentant, they must be asked to not continue in fellowship with the church. But that is a rare occurrence. And only after ample time and energy has been spent to share scripture with and call them to repentance. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, this individual is unrepentant, living in sin, not wanting to admit their sin. You need to turn away from them. Treat them as one who's unsaved. Treat them as one in the world. To remove from fellowship. That doesn't mean in our modern church culture that someone can't attend church here. As we've already heard in the video, sinners are welcome. We're all in need of that grace. However, if somebody is in open, unrepentant, continual sin, they're not going to be leading a ministry or teaching. That's part of the process. Jesus actually encourages the opposite of what Gilly Gully thinks Jesus would do. And you could jot it down. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. This is the famous example of what we get the principle of church discipline. Also of note, this is the first thing Jesus ever says about the church. So think about it. You're getting ready to teach about this thing called the church. And the first thing you bring up is church discipline. I can tell you after reading a few of them, that is not in any church growth book, manual. And in fact, they omit it, leave it alone, get away from it. People have said, well, Jesus would never discipline someone. Yeah, he's the one that told us to do it. Again, has it been misused, misapplied? Absolutely it has. But that is an issue of the pastors and the elders or the leaders of the church misusing it. It's not, the problem is not discipline in the church. Kruger, who wrote the critique of Gully that I've referenced before, gives a great summary definition of church discipline. A great summary definition of church discipline. So these are Kruger's words. Church discipline is for professing believers who have lost the way that they might repent of sinful practices and be restored. It is for maintaining the peace and purity of the church. That's the purpose of why we'd come alongside each other. Galatians chapter 6 talks about this. Uh, Jesus talks about this. Why we come alongside each other in the body of Christ. And we try to encourage each other unto faith and good works. And remember Jesus says you go one-on-one and you go two-on-one and then you bring it before the church. And I'm so thankful when I hear stories of one Christian going to another Christian and and one-on-one sharing scripture humbly and graciously. And and that person turns from their sin and repents and and finds that restoration. And now there's a beautiful moment where that person kind of comes back to Christ and is restored. It's wonderful. But progressives would have us to ignore all of that. Don't focus on behavior. Don't focus on that. Now, I will say shunning and the act of shunning is... I don't believe is appropriate. I don't believe we should shun someone. I believe we need to have conversations to share the word with them. But discipline, again, is not the problem. As is the case with many of these commandments, again, we use that word because these are their confessions of faith, basically. As is the case with many of these commandments, the progressive view misses the core point of Christianity. Christianity is not about mankind's never-ending journey to God. That's really what progressives teach. It's just we're all on this never-ending, uncertain, we kind of hope we figure it out by the time we get their journey. But Christianity is about God's completed journey to us to save us from our sins. 
John makes this point abundantly clear in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Is it true that we're all growing in Christ and we're all on a journey in a sense that we aren't where we were before and we're not where we're going to end up? Of course it is. And praise God for it. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that I'm not where I was when I was saved at 16. But I'll be honest, I'm nowhere near I want where I want to be in my walk with Christ. And I'm so thankful for growth and years of experience of just growing in the word and being around the church. But here's the point. I'm not on an unending journey of trying to figure out who God is. So hopefully one day I'll end up with him. No, I, I know my destination is secure. I know my destination is, is 100% firm in the person of Jesus Christ. The journey we're referring to is only from our perspective. Right? Is, are we on a journey from the sense that God's one? Verse 6, being confident of this very thing. So the journey part of it is from our perception of guard against what these liberal Christians and progressives, we don't want a uniformity. We want people to be individuals. Be yourself, right? That's the big message we hear a lot. Just be you. Just be yourself. And that's fine. And again, there's a hint of truth in that. We should be ourselves because God has made us and formed us as exactly as we are. But we're not talking about uniformity to just a set of rules and standards. And some of you grew up in churches that were really pushing that. We're talking about conformity to the person of Christ. So again, just an encouragement to you tonight that we see these things and we hear these things and we need to be guarded against these things that on the surface, when you hear that, especially number six, yeah, that sounds about right. But we got to dive past the words and look at what are they really saying. So again, I hope this is an encouragement to you uh, to know that your destination is secure in Christ. That there is no unknown in Christ. Now, between now and when I see Jesus, lots of unknowns from my point of view. I'm so excited to go through that experience with him. But we're not journeying and trying to figure out where God's going to end up or where we're going to end up with God, rather. We already know that he completed the journey to us, redeemed us, and saved us through the cross. Any final thoughts, comments, or questions before we dismiss? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, do you want us to bring her up on discipline right now? Yeah. Mm. It's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a self-inflicted shunning, right? And I, I've, I mean, I, I've talked to people that have gone through that process where because of their own unrepentant attitude, they removed themselves from the fellowship for a season. And they could say, well, it was because they were judging me. I've heard Christians say that before. Well, they, yeah, they were judging me. No, no one was judging you. You put that on yourself because you were under conviction. You know you needed to repent. 
And you chose to remove yourself from the situation because you know what? When I go there, I feel convicted. When I don't show up, I don't feel as convicted. So you're right. There's a lot of that that happens. Now, I will be careful to say, I'm not saying that certain churches and certain times didn't actually literally shun someone. I'm sure that has happened and whatever, but I do agree with you. I think more often than not, it's self-inflicted, right? It's in our minds and our heads, uh, which is sad because part of being in the body of Christ is to provoke one another into love and good works. And we can do that away from sin, right? And I, again, I'm so thankful that when somebody goes one-on-one in Christ and has that conversation and repentance is, is sought after and, and received and all of that, and it never goes before the church proper. Because, I, I mean, I'm just telling you, there are, from people telling me their own experiences over the years, that has happened so many times that I would have never known. No one would have ever known. But because somebody in Christ, a brother or sister, and obviously I encourage a woman going to a woman and a man to a man, coming alongside when they see something in someone's life and say, listen, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I've struggled with these things. I see this. Is there something going on? How can I help you through this? And then there's restoration, repentance. It's a wonderful thing. So again, it's, it's seen in a negative light over the last so many decades, but I think church history tells us that more often than not, church discipline is a very good and needful thing, right? Any other thoughts, comments, or questions before we dismiss? Yes, sir. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 100% agree. 100%. Anyone else? All right. Well, let's be dismissed in a word of prayer. And we'll encourage you guys to come back on Wednesday, 645, where we get back into the word. But let's pray. And seek him. Father, we pray for just that, Lord, that we would have eyes to see, we would have ears to hear, we would have an understanding mind, an understanding, an empathetic, compassionate heart, Lord. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit, which guides us into all truth, that speaks the word into our hearts and into our minds, that we would be diligent in our studies. And Lord, I know that there are so many times in our Christian lives where we feel like, maybe depending on our family situation, our life situation, where we work, our school, our area of influence, our friends, it just seems like we could echo the words of John the Baptist in the Gospels where he says, I'm a a lone voice crying in the wilderness. And maybe there's somebody here right now, Lord, that is in an environment like that, where they go to work or they're in their school or their area of influence, their friends. They feel like they're the only ones that are trying and striving to stand upon God's word. And, and to be honest, it's maybe for them, it's, it's tiring. It's so much easier to just not say anything, so much easier to just go with the flow. They don't want to stand out for a wrong reason in their minds because they're trying to teach or preach or live the word of God. But I pray that they would know that when we conform ourselves to the image of Christ and we desire to please you, to honor you, 
Lord, yes, it may be awkward at times in this life. It may cost us friendships. It may cost us things. But the, the benefit so outweighs anything we think we might lose. And Lord, I would echo again what was already said earlier, that sometimes we don't lose those friendships. Those friendships actually go deeper because we're able to help come alongside someone that's struggling in an area of sin. And we can be a blessing to them just to encourage them and pray with them and share God's word with them. And also, Lord, may we know that one of the greatest ways that we can love and encourage one another into loving good works is to remember the grace that we've received individually. That we're all fallen short of the glory of God. That there is none righteous, no, not one. That we all need grace. And my sin struggles might just be a different sin struggle than someone else, Lord, but it's still sin. We all need grace. We all need to come alongside. But I love what was said tonight, Lord. That the point isn't to encourage people to embrace sin or to accept sin. It's to encourage us to leave sin and repent of it and turn to Christ and be conformed to the image of Christ. That every day that we're a follower of Christ, that we're finding ourselves in our thinking and our attitudes and our actions being conformed more and more to what Christ would have us to think, say, and do. So, Lord, again, give us wisdom in this. Help us to understand what this looks like in our lives, in our area of influence. And, Lord, again, whatever we're struggling with tonight, I pray we just lay it before you. Repent of it. Receive that grace and forgiveness, that restoration that comes through only the Holy Spirit. Keep our eyes on you and look forward to what you're going to do the week ahead. in the week ahead. Father, again, thank you for all of this. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.